perpetual fear on doing a podcast is uh, forgetting that piece. Cool. So, all right. Are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. All right. Hello, and welcome to the Pragmatic Live podcast series, where we tackle the biggest challenges facing today's product management, product marketing, and other market and data-driven professionals with some of the best minds in the industry. I'm Rebecca Calajaris, Vice President of Marketing and Product Strategy at Pragmatic Institute, and your host for this episode. I am absolutely thrilled to have on our show Mike Mace, VP of Market Strategy for User Testing, experienced Silicon Valley tech leader with small companies you might have heard of, like Apple and Palm, uh, and also author of Map the Future. Welcome, Mike. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Excellent. We're thrilled to have you. Uh, we, we actually have done quite different things with user testing and, and are really big fans of what you guys do. And of course, that real focus on the user and the markets. Um, and one of the things I really want to talk to you about, Michael, is I know that you have spent some time as an organization and you particularly tracking uh, the pandemic and how that relates to, to what's happening today. And, and in some ways, I think it's like, oh, the pandemic. But if anything, I have learned from the pandemic, Mike, is it feels like I should just not plan, right? Like (laughs) all good plans will just go away. Uh, But of course, as product people, we can't do that, right? That's our job, roadmaps, product plans. And so I think really sort of trying to take off the layers of this uh, and understand how do we do planning? How do we create plans in a time of COVID? How do we get inside the heads of our users and see how what is happening today affects the problems they have and the product offerings we should have? So that's hope what I'm hoping to do, and but I dived in really quick. First, let's let's back up a little bit, Mike. Give the listeners uh, a little bit about your background and a little bit about user testing. Sure. Well, you already did a great background on me, so th- thank you very much for that. Um, user testing uh, for people who know the company, they usually know us as a way to test. Um, UX stuff. So, oh, I've got a new design for the checkout flow on my website. Let me run a quick user test to see how people go through that. And, you know, we we do that sort of testing. And the way it works is we've got a big bunch of uh, panel, a big, huge collection of panelists that you can select from. You can choose demographics and job titles and things like that. You can ask them to do a task. Their screen gets recorded. Their voice gets recorded as they explain what they're doing. And you get that back. Um, however, that same system can be used for a lot of other types of feedback as well. And in particular, relative to the pandemic, what we've been doing is just tracking what people say about what they're going through. So instead of asking them to do a usability task, we say to them, hey, uh, how worried are you about the pandemic? And what activities are you avoiding? And how scared are you of doing X, Y, Z? And we've been doing that since the beginning of the pandemic. So we started last April. Um, We've been doing it every quarter. Um, We've been pairing that also with quant surveys so that we could get exact numbers on how people um, respond to questions like how many of you are afraid of flying on an airplane or shopping in a store or something like that. So it gives us this nice mix of here's numerically what's going on, plus here's the motivation behind it. And the, the goal is both to understand what's happening now, but especially to get inside the heads of customers so we can anticipate what they might do in the future. Um, nobody can predict the future, you know, not me, not anybody else. I don't want to oversell what you can do with any sort of research, but the idea is to learn how people are thinking well enough that you can anticipate how they will respond as things change. 
So it's all about being prepared for the possibilities so you can jump on them super quickly. And that's what we've been trying to do around COVID lately is to understand what are the possibilities? What are people thinking right now? And therefore, as things change, what should we be anticipating could happen next? Great. One of the things I love about, about this use of kind of getting user feedback and user testing is the emotional aspects that you capture. Yep. I think that's such a, a powerful part of understanding our users and how we create products and experiences that really uh, relate to them and connect. And I think sometimes that is is not elevated uh, enough when we do testing. So that's, I just think, a, a great part of this as well. Great. I agree. So let's dig into some of that, right? So what? let's first start with like, what are some of the, the findings that you found? What are the kind of big themes from the research that you've done? Yeah, so so let's start with kind of a baseline and then, then we can kind of move into when and how things are likely to change. So first of all, um, around the world, and by the way, the latest round of this that we did was not just in the US, it was US, UK, Australia, and Singapore. And somebody always wants to ask about the, the quantitative side of it, like what was your sample size? So we were 1,000 people in the US. We were about 500 each in um, UK and Australia. We were a little bit smaller in Singapore because it's a smaller population. So this is going to be good to within about three or four percentage points in terms of the numbers. And this was done at the end of December, literally the last week of December. So it's quite fresh. Number one across those countries, overall anxiety about the pandemic is about the same. And about 70% of people say they are somewhere between moderately and very deeply concerned. So pretty high concern level. Um, there are not a lot of people statistically who are blowing it off despite much what you might hear about on Facebook or something like that. Um, most people are really still quite worried and quite concerned. And that hasn't changed a lot throughout the pandemic. Um, we have been tracking how people feel about doing particular things in public. You know, a whole big list of activities like riding a plane, shopping in a store, you know, et cetera, et cetera, uh, getting, getting your hair cut. Um, and what we found is that people's fear level depends on the level of trust that they have around that activity. So the more that they think it's possible to sanitize a particular location, the more that they trust that the people running it will know how to sanitize it, the more that they trust that they're actually going to do it, and the more control they have over their own exposure. Can they leave? Can they move away from people? The more comfortable they feel. Um, so flying on an airplane, very scary uh, because I'm trapped on that airplane. I can't move away from people. I don't necessarily trust that with the rapid turnaround on flights that they're going to really sanitize everything. Same thing for riding on public transit for, for all those reasons. Um, on the other hand, going to a doctor's office, believe it or not, a little bit lower, actually not a little bit lower, a substantially lower fear level. Even though um, you would think, hey, people are you know, sick people go to doctors. I don't want to, I want to go, go to a doctor's office. That's definitely there. But there's such a high level of trust that doctors know how to sterilize things and that they're going to do so, that that makes people actually more comfortable in those settings um, than they are in some of the less controlled settings. Um, the other thing that we've been seeing over time is that uh, the fear of specific activities as we've been tracking these things has been gradually dropping. 
So people are less afraid of shopping in a store now than they were last spring. Um, and that applies across most things, not really public transit and a couple of the other really scary ones like airplanes. But for a lot of things, people are not as frightened of doing those activities as they were previously. And I think that's kind of acclimation. They've gotten used to the situation. They know how it works. They've had a chance to see that the people running those venues have um, uh, have been figuring out how to sterilize things and how to protect their customers. And as a result, they're slowly getting used to the idea of going there. Now, it's not return to normal lifestyle, especially for a lot of people, um, because they're still very frightened. Um, but it's more willingness to do these activities. Um, what that means to companies is, if you're doing anything that involves interacting with people directly, uh, the more you can do to show them how you're protecting them, how you're keeping it clean, how you've thought through the process of protecting them, the more likely you are to get some business back now before the pandemic even completely goes away. So don't let up on that conversation of here's how we protect you. That is still something that people are watching really, really closely. And it is the key to getting business back prior to the end of the pandemic. I think that's a really interesting point too, because I think sometimes we get tired of telling people like, we're like, we've already, we've been talking about this for, for eight months, right? We don't need yep. to keep going. And, and I think it's still at the time it comes up an important thing to hit, um, an important thing to be proactive about, right? So that yep. it's not waiting until they ask you about it. Uh, it it's, it's telling them up front that you've yep. got this covered and that it matters to you as it matters to them. It's, it's a way of saying that you love their, your customers, right? And nobody ever gets tired of hearing people say, I love you. you know? And that's what, that's what you're really saying when you're describing how you're taking care of them. So that gives, I think, is an excellent set. And I love that you had such an international audience, a, a really good set of, of a lot of, of sort of the stage setting. How are people feeling? Yep. If I am a product manager which, hey, I happen to be. Uh, but, <laughs> funny story. No, but, um, and, I, and I think that's true. I get it. I understand. But how do I track, what, what should I be looking at to, to kind of signal when my users' feelings are evolving so that I am meeting them where they are now? That's a great question. The, the big, big thing that I would do is don't rely on a single way of tracking attitudes. Um, so, Number one, you want to be sure that you're getting both quant and qual uh, information. So that's why we've been doing this stuff, right? With both doing surveys, which we're not a survey company. We're, we're paying a third-party company, you know, same, same ones that you guys would normally do to do surveys on your own. We're working through them to do the quantitative surveying type of thing because it's really important to get a numerical baseline on what people are saying about things. But that alone... So, so you could survey your customers to say, hey, how are you feeling about this? What are you thinking? You, if you're not doing that, you really should be. Um, uh, but that's only one piece of it because it won't tell you why they're feeling that way and it won't help you anticipate how their thinking is evolving. And you may make assumptions about how they're thinking that could be completely wrong. So the other thing is you need to be doing structured conversations with them where you get them to talk about these things. And it could be as simple as taking the same questions that you ask in a, in a survey but saying to them in a, in a situation where they can talk back to you, hey, tell me how you would answer this question and then explain why. Tell me, tell me what you're thinking behind that. What makes you feel that way? Is there anything you'd like to add that you weren't able to put across when you answered that little numerical question? You can do those sorts of conversations through our system. Obviously, we'd love you to do that. User tests are really good for that. 
But there are lots of other ways you can do it as well. But just please make sure you're not doing just the numbers alone, or frankly, not just the conversations either, because you'll get a much richer picture if you do both. The other thing I want you to be really super cautious about is don't be over-reliant on social listening. There are lots of wonderful tools today that let you uh, collect and collate what people are saying online on Facebook and Twitter and other places like that. And that's valuable. You don't want to ignore it. So that's another data point that I think is good to get. But you've got to take it with a big grain of salt because the average person who posts comments online does not think the same way as the average person in general in the population. Um, the people who post stuff online are generally the ones who are the most highly motivated, meaning that they might be the most excited about your stuff, but they might also be the angriest. Um, uh, they tend to be kind of fanatics in either direction. They tend to be sometimes a little bit narcissistic because that's one of the things that motivates uh, people to do stuff online is they like to hear themselves talk. The big thing to understand is that they are self-selected and they are not a typical proper sample of your average customer. So if you overemphasize the stuff that you're hearing through social listening, you will overreact to issues. You will overmanage the details. You may overly complicate things because you'll get very detailed feedback from these people that goes beyond the interests of regular customers. And that's true, not just about the pandemic, that's true about everything. It's true about society in general. You know, our, our society sounds like we're a lot more conflicted than we actually are. People are not as angry as they appear to be based on what you hear on, on Twitter and Facebook because the angriest people are posting there. So you can really skew your perspective if you do too much social listening. Don't dismiss it. You need to respond to it. Hey, because those people can set opinions about you. So you, you need to be dealing with them. But never mistake what you hear on social media for the real world. They are very different things. And you can really screw yourself up if you overfocus on it. All really good points, Mike. And I think another thing that you and I had talked about before, too, is is as you've delved in and understand your um, users and what matters to them, there are markers in 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 the world that you can help watch, right? So if yeah. Uh, yeah, vaccines, I think is one that you had brought up that was a really interesting sort of external marker that can help you predict, start to predict when, uh, people will get to different levels of comfort. Yep, yep, yep. And and so thank you. That's a beautiful segue because this is a great one for people to be thinking about. So I would love to be able to tell you exactly when uh, life is going to go back to normal. Like when is everybody going to all of a sudden resume their normal lifestyles? And a lot of the companies I talk with want to know that. And it is impossible to answer that question directly um, We because it depends on too many things that are not predictable. What you can do though, is you can ask customers what needs to happen before you're going to be willing to go back to your normal lifestyle. And then you get some great markers to watch for in terms of, oh, okay, when XYZ happens, then they're going to be ready to move. And so I can just track the status of those things. So we ask that, you know, what needs to happen before you're going to be able to, willing to go back to your normal lifestyle? Um, and t the number one answer was the same in every single country, um, it was when most people have been vaccinated. 
Um, next after that, in most places, was when the health ex experts say that it's safe and when the reported rate of infection drops. In Australia and Singapore, they also said very highly ranked when the government tells me that it's safe. That was ranked much lower in the US and the UK. And I think the reason is because Australia and Singapore have been more effective at containing the disease. The infection rates are much lower there. And as a result, the government has a lot more credibility. Um, in the US, the government saying, hey, it's safe to go back and resume your normal lifestyle. That's probably going to move maybe a third of the population. The other two thirds are going to go, nope, I don't, I don't really believe you. I'm going to wait until my doctor says it's safe. And more to the point, I'm going to wait until I've been vaccinated and most of the people around me have been vaccinated. So that's, that's the way it is. By the way, the current baseline um, across all the countries we talked to, about 20% of the population says that they're ready to go back to their normal lifestyle now. So that's nice. That's 20%, but that means the other 80% are not ready to resume their no normal lifestyle at this point in time. And so the first thing, the most important thing to track is the rate of vaccination. And it, the faster that moves, um, and the, the, as long as we continue to get reports of the vaccines working, and so far that's been good, the faster that moves, the better people are going to feel. Now there's a follow-on question, um, which is, okay, how willing are people to take the vaccine? Right, because maybe if they're all anti-vaxxers and they're terrified of the vaccine, and um, they're going to refuse to take it, then we're going to be stuck for a while waiting. It's going to be a chicken and egg thing. Um, on that one, there's good news, which is the rate of willingness to take the vaccine has been going up over time. So we've been tracking that over time. Uh, as of now, in the United States, half the population says they will take the vaccine immediately as soon as it's offered to them, which is great. In the UK, it's about 40%, so it's a little bit lower. Actually, the rate is interesting. It's lower in Australia and Singapore. It's down around a third. A lot more people want to wait. But again, remember, that's because they're at less risk. The, the, the pandemic is much more contained there, so they're feeling like there's less of an incentive to go get the shot. Whereas in the US, it's like, oh, just, just give me the darn thing. Let me get this over with so I can get back to my normal life. So I think as the vaccine becomes available, you know, crossing my fingers, it looks like we may actually get better uptake of it than we were worried about previously. So that that's really good news. Great. I think the other thing that's interesting, and it is is driven by one of the questions in your in your survey, the there's the aspect of how comfortable and how confident you're feeling. Mm -hmm. And then there's the aspect of now that you're feeling confident, what are you anxious to do? And what are you really like, you know, excited to do? And what are you willing to wait? Like, what are the first things when you feel comfortable you're going to want to do? And yep. Because I think and that has real implications on when people are going to re-engage with different products. Yeah. Yeah. What will they do first? You know, what's all the, the pent up demand for things? Um, and so we tried to get at that. You know, it's, um, uh, it's, it's hard to tell what people will actually do, you know, because they're just saying what they, what they want to do. But again, this is all about just getting inside their heads and understand what they're, um, what they're thinking about. So it, it varies from country to country. It was interesting. It was different. In the U.S., the top ones were, uh, I, I want to go out and eat in a restaurant. Um, so that was number one. Number two was, I want to leave my home without wearing a mask. I think we, I think we can all see that one pretty well. The third one is going on a vacation inside the country. So a lot of pent up demand for, for travel. And by the way, 
for the U.S., going on a vacation outside the country was also high. It just wasn't as high as going on a vacation inside the country. Um, in the U.K., similar rankings on stuff, um, but uh, more people ranked international vacation high. And that's not surprising because U.K., you're right next to Europe. It's more normal to do a holiday in Spain or something like that. And so a lot of people want to get back to doing that. Um, in Australia, number one and number two we're going on vacations, um, or as they would call it, holiday, um, either internationally or in country. And in Singapore, going on an international trip was number one. So, so number one, now, one thing to understand for Singapore and Australia, they can already do some other things like going to the movies and eating in restaurants because there isn't as much vaccines, or pardon me, as much COVID. So, it's not as high on their list because they're not actually deprived of it right now. I was I was so jealous when I was reading the results because it was like, oh, there are places where people like routinely go out to restaurants and stuff like that. And it was just, okay, yeah, I, I want to <laughs> get me the vaccine. I really want to get back to that. Um, but across all these countries, the big theme was travel, 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 travel. Tons of people want to do that. Um, so uh, we also gave them an open-ended thing at the end to say, hey, is there anything else you want to add on this question, you know, and, and out of the interviews and stuff? The really touching thing was we hadn't thought to put this on the list for the survey, but a huge number of people said the thing they're looking to the most is I want to hug my friends and family. Um, and that was like, oh man, you know, kind of reminds you of the emotional side of this whole thing and and how much emotionally people are suffering. And I think for all of us as as product managers and marketers, we, we do need to be cognizant of the economic impacts, the hard physical things that people can and can't do and, and what they're looking forward to doing. But there's also just the emotional stress that's on people and the need for feeling the relief and the relaxation of being able to go back to normal human interactions. That's a, that's a really, really important one. Um, how that affects your product and your business is going to vary tremendously based on what business you're in. But keep in mind that just as important as the practical elements of this stuff, there is an enormous emotional component to it that is super important to all of our customers. It's so true. And and it's so true to your point too, where the, uh, I think that part, you, you can't lose how important that connection is when you, when you look at all the other results, because what they want to do when they can really has nothing to do with your product and everything to do with, with a feeling of normalcy, but more important, a feeling of intimacy with, yeah. with uh, those they've been missing. Yep. Absolutely. But on the, I think uh, if we were not, if I am a product manager and I'm not thinking about my product and I'm thinking about my own professional career, right? Uh, yes. Lots of people worked remotely prior to, to COVID. Pretty much everybody worked <laughs> remotely afterwards and, and something pieces in between. And I think that particularly with the vaccine and, and there's starting to be a light, there's lots of discussion and questions about, you know, what will it look like after this? Are we going back? Does going back to normal and my desire to go back to normal mean uh, the same thing in my professional life? Do I want to go back full time? I mean, you see hugely different um, 
you know, thoughts from, from the different tech leaders from saying, geez, there's nothing good about remote to being like, Hey, there's, it's all good. We should maybe just do all of this. Right. There's yeah. a really different school of thoughts. I'd love, I know you guys dug a little bit into this as well, but kind of what did your survey say about what people are either hoping for or expecting? I'm not sure which way you guys went yeah. uh, in terms of, of post COVID and how that meant for us as working, working folk. Yep. Yep. It's been really, really interesting. And it was, it was cool, by the way, to do this, the international version of this, the, the most recent time, because it turned out to be almost exactly the same in every single country, which is really, really striking. So I'll give you the numbers first, and then let's talk about why and, and what they mean. So the question was asked that we asked them was, before the pandemic, were you working all the time outside of the house? Were you working part-time at home and part-time at an office or other location? Or were you working full-time from home? And then we asked, after the pandemic ends, what would you like to do? Same choices. What we found was the majority of people prior to the pandemic, up to about between 50 and, and uh, 50% and two-thirds, said that they were working full-time outside of the home. They were never working from home. Um, and then some were working part-time from home and part-time in an office, and some were working full-time at home. You know, contractors, people like that. Post-COVID, what they would like if their employers let them do it um, was it was a certain number want to work full-time from home. It's about maybe a quarter, something like that. Um, another 20%, 25% um, want to work uh, or expect to work full-time outside of the home. And then the majority of people want to work um, part-time at home and part-time in the office. Now, the, the, the piece, so that's the numbers. Is So the move is very decisively away from working full-time outside the home, and it's toward part-time home and office with some people saying full-time home, an increased number saying full-time home. The background behind that is that there are the people who said that they they want to work outside the home, some of them it's that they want to go to an office, but most of them it's because their chosen career doesn't let them operate at home and they really want to get back to work. You know, so I work in retail. I'm a teacher. Um, I'm a construction worker. <laughs> I don't want to do that at home. I can't possibly do that at home. I've, I've got to, I want to get back to work and I look forward to get back, getting back to work full time. For the people who are knowledge workers or whatever you want to call them, people who could potentially do the job at home, most of them want to do it at home part-time. And when we probe with them on why, why do they view it that way? They actually tell us very elaborate stories. They've been thinking about this stuff clearly because they've got a whole scenario in their heads and it usually runs something like this. Well, I can be more efficient on collaboration if I go to the office um, and I, that's the place where I can brainstorm with my coworkers best and we can establish ties and we can do that stuff. So I want to do that a couple times a week. And literally some people have it down to, I want to do that two days a week and then three days a week at home. And others go, I want to be one day a week at the office and four days a week at home and stuff like that. They've really mapped it out. But then they, they say about the time in the office, what they say is, well, I'm always getting interrupted. I can't focus. I'm, I've found that I'm much more productive when I'm working at home. I actually get more done, plus I'm more relaxed. So I wanna spend two days a week in the office 
and I'm going to really focus on networking there. I want to spend three days a week at home and I'm going to focus on being productive there. And I can do my job better if I have that balance than if I go back to the office. And people are really, really strong on this. Now, the question is, will the employers allow them to do that? And we haven't surveyed them on that. We've just been surveying the employees and asking them. What I expect is that we're going to see an ongoing negotiation. Um, but I can tell you the companies that offer that sort of flexibility, that plan for it, that maybe plan out, hey, here are the two days a week that we're all going to be in the office and here are the three days a week that you can work from home. So it's all coordinated, that sort of stuff. Those companies are likely to attract the best employees. This is, this is going to become a thing of, hey, if the salary is the same, I'll work at the place that gives me more flexibility on location now that I know how to, how to manage that. So I think ultimately competition between employers is going to drive us toward this sort of mixed mode sometimes in the office and uh, sometimes at home. I, my gut is that that's going to be a permanent change for a lot of industries. Yeah. And I think it'll be really interesting. You called it an ongoing negotiation because I find that really interesting. Like I, I would be hard pressed to see a lot of organizations set a line in the sand and be like, all right, everybody goes back in the office at this point. But you do wonder long term, will the patterns slide one way or the other, right? Yeah. Will we yep. forget that this did work and there were some definite efficiency plans go and you just kind of go back to the norm? Or have we at this point, I, I do, my hypothesis is, it's gone on long enough that yeah. maybe it's long enough for the the whole sort of mental model around it to have switched, right? If you went back in May, like we all thought in our, because we didn't understand anything. Yeah. <laughs> in March and we'll be like, we're back by May. Um, that may not have been long enough to make people yeah. really get it, but um, it is interesting. And then you also just see uh, at a personal and national level, a lot of movement, right? If I'm going to yeah. work from home, where my home is, is very different. And I think particularly on the coast, you see yeah. people thinking about the more space they can get, the cost savings if they go elsewhere. And if those yep. same great jobs are available to them, but with the view of, you know, the Tetons. Uh, yeah, yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. Why not? If you can, if you can do it. And, um, you know, I can, I can tell you myself personally, I live in the San Francisco Bay area. I was riding public transit to get to work every day, and my commute was more than an hour and a half in each direction. Wow. I'm never going to go back to doing that full time unless I have to. I mean, it's just, it's amazing the difference in just, you know, uh, energy levels, not having to cope with all that garbage. Um, and, you know, so that's me, and I'm trying to really be careful about keeping me separate from from the research so that I'm not biasing it. But it's just when you hear this stuff from from the people you're talking to and you're feeling it yourself, it really kind of reinforces that that stuff. You know, the other thing I should add, though, is it's up to us to make it work. And by us, I mean all of us as a society. If if we all start treating working at home as an opportunity to slack off and not be productive, then it's not going to work. And we'll end up back in the office with the regular rat race. So it's not just that employers need to be flexible. It's also that all of us as workers, if we're going to do that thing of saying, hey, trust me to work from home, we need to actually deliver. Um, yeah. And so this is something, this is a journey we're all going on together and it's up to us to make it work if we wanted to. I have thought about that as well. 
right? For the person who, for the, the only time I've worked full, uh, full-time at home in my career is during this time. Mm-hmm. And one of the things about the pandemic is it, it sure does instill good work habits for you because there's nowhere for me to go, right? It's not like, yeah. oh, I'll just go run <laughs> some errands at break, <laughs> right? Yep. And, and I think there's that. And I think for a lot of people, we're very fortunate, both of us, but there's a heightened concern about employment, right? With yep. the, the yeah. economy. And yeah. so that was the, the second driver to really put in good, there's nowhere to go. And like, you just felt fortunate because you were watching other people around you lose their positions. So you're really going to double commit. And I do think it did help us set some, some really good structures in place um, that to your point, we do have to be good citizens as, as more options are available to us or good employee citizens, right? Yeah. Um, to, to feather in that flexibility that you should be able to take advantage with the work ethic that is required to keep this uh, as a viable option. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think the other thing we should add about working at home is uh, people with kids at home. Uh, that's a special situation. Um, if, you know, okay, work, working, working from home is dependent in part on having the kids back in school because taking care of the kids full-time and making sure they get educated when they're learning from home at the same time as you're trying to work from home, that is a miserable experience for a lot of parents. And that's not sustainable long-term. It's, it's tough as a, as the, as the mother of a fifth grader, it is tough on my husband yeah. and I, and it's tough on her, right? It's hard all day long. If yeah. you're grinding out, for her to come over for help and for me to have to be like, I can't help you now. I can't help you now. So we actually, I have yeah. a little sign that goes up that means that you you can't interrupt me. It's a picture of her that says I'm number her number one fan. Uh, and then you have Aww. to figure out there's enough meetings in your life that, you know what, if I'm, if I'm meeting with my team and she needs to ask me a question, that sign's not up because yep. I have to give her space. You know, yeah. it can't be for, you know, 10 hours a day, just pretend I'm not here. <laughs> yeah, but, absolutely. But it is, it is a, a definitely an extra layer. And I have one and she's in fifth grade and I can't imagine the younger kids. I can't imagine multiples. So it's. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, we've, we've interviewed some of those folks and they're just, they're frazzled. Um, they're just totally frazzled and I really feel for them. And, you know, that's, that's been a true thing without throughout the pandemic yeah. is one person will be sailing through just fine and another person will be suffering and you don't know. So you just you just have to be really careful about making assumptions. But the, the good news is once the kids are back in school, then this starts to feel a lot more workable. You know, like, mm-hmm. okay, I can be at home. It's quiet. I can plan my, you know, super productive during these hours when the kids are in school. And then when they're back, I can kind of split time a little bit. It's like you can see a path to where that can work. Yeah. Um, but it's it's, again, up to all of us to make it work. Yeah. And I also think you make a good point there too. One that I always try to remind myself, I totally understand everyone's point of view about like, like, should the kids go back? Should they stay home? Can I do this? Is it sustainable? It depends on so many factors, including just your network, your house structure, right? Like, I mean, a million different things, much of which someone doesn't have control over. And every version of that is make, is, is acceptable for lack of a better word. When you when you said house structure, you reminded me of a really interesting. Can can I jump to a little thing that we learned from Singapore? Absolutely. So people in Singapore, much more than the other countries, are willing to go along with a lot of the government regulations on, um, you know, like, hey, don't stand too close to each other, wear your masks, 
um, uh, you know, uh, those tables in that restaurant cannot be too close together. That stuff is rigorously enforced there and they're not resentful of it. And I, I asked some, some folks in Singapore about that to try to understand, you know, there's the stereotype of, oh, well, uh, you know, Asian country, they're more compliant, et cetera, et cetera. That's not it. What it is, is all the apartments in Singapore are really, really tiny. And they were locked down for a little while. And it was miserable because you're locked in this tiny little apartment with no backyard and you can't go outside. And it was a horrible experience. It's like being in jail. And so they are very willing to accept all sorts of public restrictions because they don't have a nice house with a backyard Mm -hmm. to go to the way a lot of Americans do. They're, they're cooped up in a tiny little apartment in a high rise. And so, so it's a lot of the, the differences in reactions are not driven by some sort of nebulous, semi-racially based cultural bias thing. It's just the natural conditions that they're in. How's the, how's the country structured? And once you understand that, then their reactions are very, very understandable. Um, it's very logical. Hey, my apartment's tiny. I don't want to be cooped up. I'll accept lots more restrictions on what I do in public. Makes sense. Absolutely. All right, Mike, we have talked about a lot of different things today, and it's been great. If you could get our listeners to do two things differently tomorrow based on what we talked about today, what would that be? Yep. So number one, um, have an ongoing dialogue with your customers about when will they resume their normal uh, patterns of behavior? Find out the things that have changed relative to your business. I presume you know that already, but just be sure. And as you're tracking those things, track them through a multiple number of different ways. Don't just rely on a single metric. Don't rely on just quant stuff. Don't rely on just qual conversations. Be doing all of them and be actively comparing back and forth uh, uh, what's going on with those things. That's number one. Number two, in terms of tracking what's going on in society, track the rate of vaccination, because that is kind of the gold standard, assuming nothing big changes with how the vaccines are working, but assuming they continue to work, track the rate of vaccination, because that is the thing that's going to be most effective at giving you a proxy for when will people be looking to go back to to their usual behaviors. Awesome. All right, Mike. If people want to reach you or learn more about any of this research and about user testing, how should they do it? They can just send me an email. That's the easiest way. So I'm just Mike at usertesting.com, M-I-K-E, and um, drop me a note. I'd love to hear from you. If you want to hear some more details on the numbers that came out of the survey and stuff, we're going to, this is all fresh. We haven't written up the white paper yet, but we're going to be doing that in the next couple of weeks. So I will put you on the list to receive that. Um, and, uh, and you're also welcome to follow up with me with exact questions and stuff like that. I'm, I would be delighted to hear from anybody who's got questions. Excellent. Mike, it was a genuine pleasure having you on. Thank you so much. Thank you. Likewise. I really enjoyed it. All right. That does it for today's episode. Thanks everyone for listening. And don't forget to join us next week when we tackle another great topic designed to help elevate your product, your company, and your career.